invite you to open up to the book of Job, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about what it is God has us here. And I think I, I shared with some of you guys uh, last time we were together. I think a lot of people get Job wrong. I think we think Job is about Job, and I think Job is about Satan's attack against the character of God and His plan and purpose in lives in which He works among us and through us by grace and love. So, when we look at it, I kind of want to look at it from, from that lens. I want God to be central. So we talked about it last time. Here's the struggle a lot of us have in our life. A couple of things I'll try to lay the, the groundwork for and then we'll move forward. But a couple of things that we struggle with. Um, God's desire or plan or purpose in our life begins with Him being central. He's the focus, not me. He's the focus, not Job. He's the one who's being attacked, not Job. Job is a pawn, a tool uh, that Satan is trying to use in an effort to disprove God's purpose and plan in Job's life. The centrality of God is so important because when we get our eyes off of that, everything gets bigger. Right? We've all probably been somewhere where we're struggling with something going on in our life, a problem, uh, um, some issues, some challenge that we're facing. And the challenge becomes greater than everything else. It becomes all-encompassing. Maybe it's a struggle in marriage. Maybe it's a, a problem in finances. Maybe it's some something, addictions, whatever. There's a thing, and it becomes big because I'm central. And everything I look at, I focus at through my own centrality. I'm the main thing, and how these things are affecting me. So just like my thumb. My thumb can be big. I got a truck out in the parking lot, but depending on where I hold my thumb, I can cover that truck up with my thumb. Is that truck bigger than my thumb? No. By my perspective, it has become so because of the things, the way I'm focusing. If God is central, then all my issues, all my challenges, all my problems, whether financial or addictions or marriage or whatever, are now looked at through the lens of Almighty God. And God is bigger than all those problems. But if... As often is the case, I become central. I'm not. I have no power to overcome. I have no special ability that somebody else doesn't have. So the centrality of God is important. The second thing is to remember what you know about God that is irrefutable. Think about the things you know about God that is not up for you know, vote. God is love. First John chapter 4. That God loves me. John 3.16. Last I checked, I'm in the world, right? For God so loved who? So any of you who are from Mars are uh, uh, cut loose. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're from Earth, then you're included, right? For God so loved the world. What about uh, God's purposes? Does God have a plan for our lives? Is God's plan our destruction? 
We know that's not true because Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Jeremiah 29.11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. It was written to the people, the children of Israel, at a time when they were going into slavery. They had lost everything, homes, money, uh, family, everything's gone. All gone. And God, through His prophet, stands before the people in chains, heading to slavery. And God says, my plan for you is good and not evil. To give you a future and a hope. Look, those things are absolutely true all the time, no matter what. They're never not true. Sometimes we might feel like they're not true, but they are always true. God needs always to be central. God is always good. And Job is about God. So think about some of the things we saw in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 is round 1. And to be honest, round 1 goes to Job. Round 1 goes to Job. Satan said to God, his attack against God was, your plan and purpose for Job won't work. Because the only reason Job loves you is because of all the stuff you've given him. You take away his stuff and he'll curse you to his face. That's Satan's challenge against God. You remember God's answer? No, he won't. Go ahead. Go ahead. And he allows Satan to, to, to work his work. And then one day, Job loses everything he had. Everything he had is gone. When we come to the end of Job chapter 1, and we look at verse 21, and we look at Job's final response to that day in which everything was stripped away, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in verse 20 it says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. How is it that Job was able to defeat Satan standing as God's champion? Because God's the one who said, Have you considered my servant Job? He said, There's nobody else like Job. Have you considered him? Because he loves me no matter what. And Satan said, There's no way. He loves you because you give him stuff. How is it that Job overcame? We saw it last time. One, Job worshipped God in the good times, not just the bad. Most people don't. Most people worship God in the bad times, hoping that by their worship and appeasement, they may appease God and He will stop whatever's happening in their life. And so they'll worship Him during the down times. Churches traditionally receive the greatest offerings and tithes during recessions. Isn't that weird? When the economy is good, churches have less. When the economy is bad, churches have more. Because people traditionally are trying to appease the God, right? I mean... You know, don't we see it in, in ancient history, right? The, oh no, there's, there's no storms. We gotta appease God. So let's sacrifice, you know, 50 young women. And maybe that'll appease God and it'll rain. 
And, and that carries over. Still today, that's how people think God relates. Well, if I make God happy, He'll stop. If I make God happy, this will go away. Job overcame those issues in his life because he worshipped God when it was good. He relished in his relationship with God. He was enjoying a relationship with God. He was sacrificing all the time. He was praising God all the time. He loved God in the good times. And when it was bad, it was easy for Job to worship. For Job to relinquish what was going on in his life. The second thing, not only did Job worship in the good times, Job knew everything he had was God's anyway. So when God took it away, God was just taking it back. Job understood the biblical concept. The Bible teaches that we're stewards of what God gives us. We don't have what we have because we've earned some great and awesome thing. We have what we have because God's given it to us. The scripture declares that all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all His. That includes our children. Our children belong to Him. He gives them to us in stewardship. And He charges us, right? In the scripture, doesn't He tell us, train up a child? In the scripture, doesn't He say, teach them the word? When you walk around, when you go, when you sit down, when you rise up, and the things that you do, teach your... He, he challenges us with the stewardship of our children, but our children belong to Him. Job understood all his stuff was God's anyway. All of it. So when he lost his stuff, he was able to say what we read in that last verse, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It was God's anyway. If God wants it, I trust God. All that hinges off of that relationship that he had, that understanding that he had. The last thing that Job understood was that God's in control. Now, we have a hard time reconciling that, and we'll see it more in in chapter 2. God's in control. Nothing touches your life that doesn't pass through the hands of a God who is willing to die for you. Nothing. Now, I had some crazy things happen in my life. Things that were hard for me to reconcile. I was molested when I was 13. That passed through the hands of God. Because nobody touches me without God's okay. He's in control. And sometimes I still wrestle with uh, the whys about that. But when I do, I go back to what I know. God loves me. God's plan wasn't to destroy me. I can trust Him. And in the years since, I'm an old man now. 13 was a long time ago. Amen. <laughs> in the years since... I've had opportunity to use that to encourage. So one day maybe I'll I'll recognize God's purposes, but I can know and find comfort in He's in control. 
He didn't lose it. It was not like, you know, God was taking such good care of me and then he lost sight of me for a minute and blah, 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 blah. He, he kind of fumbled the ball and all this crazy stuff happened in my life and, and it's out of control. It comforts me to know whatever I'm going through, good, bad, or ugly, a God who died for me has allowed it. The God who has a plan for my life that's for my good and His glory a God who loves me. So I hold on to that. And not on to the other. Because that was kind of Job's framework. In the everyday. Not in the, in the storm. Before the storm. Before the storm. Everything's good. Whoa, Job's rich. He's got everything he wants. He's got a good life. He's got happy kids. He's got... Everything's good. But Job worshipped God. And Job knew that God's... His stuff was all God's stuff. And Job knew God was in control. So when... The Lord lifted his hedge of protection. And Satan took on God's champion, Job. Job was ready. It's too late to get ready in the middle of the storm. Although God hears us when we cry out. If we're going to be God's champion, we got to be ready when there's no storm. Always focused on Him. And I think that's a big reason why we see Job winning. He understood, this is not aimlessness. Some people read Job and they think it's aimlessness. This is like the, the story of the gods in Greek mythology and they're just jacking with Job's life. But that's not what it is. The story is Satan saying to God, you shouldn't bother with Job or love Job or forgive Job because he's not worth it. Because if you take away your stuff from him, he won't love you. And so God does... What he still does today, he allowed the test. And Satan did what he still does today. He took the opportunity to tempt. And Job proved that God was right. And his love went to the Lord regardless of his circumstances. Because we come to the end of chapter 1, guys, and we looked at the end of chapter 1 last time, in verse 22, it says, In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. So Job passed, right? Satan said he'll curse him to his face. Satan said, this is, this is, Job's going to fail. So Satan will quit, right? That has not been my experience. So today, when we take a look at chapter 2, what I want us to consider is what is the, the nature of our spiritual battle. We find ourselves in a spiritual battle. And so, that battle is, is being fought over spiritual issues. Not physical. It wasn't about Job. Job didn't do something wrong. Job didn't necessarily do something right. Job was the, the, the tool that Satan wanted to use to break the heart of God. God was the one being attacked. And Job was able to overcome the battle of the enemy because he had a relationship with God. Well, when we come to, to chapter 2, we want to see this, the, the, the nature of the spiritual battle. So here's what we recognize. Satan 
is persistent and progressive. He doesn't give up, right? It's not usually just one shot and I'll I'll see you later. He keeps working. Look what happens. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God, the Beni Elohim, sons of God, mentioned three times in Scripture, twice in Job, once in Genesis. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So Satan, again, we see his access in heaven. The word Satan, you guys remember, we talked about it last time. What's it mean? The accuser, right? So what is he called in the New Testament? The accuser of the brethren, right? So he's accusing the brethren day and night. He's telling them they're not right. They're, they're not worth it. They, they, they're not, not worthy. Your grace doesn't work. God, your love doesn't work. They don't really love you. Do they love you for nothing? They only love you because you give them stuff. Satan is constantly there accusing. In verse 2, I love it. The Lord said to Satan, Well, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Oh, I've been ah, here and there. So the Lord says in verse 3, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Don't miss that first phrase. Have you considered my servant? Who Job belonged to? God. Job had a relationship with God. He relished in his relationship with God. He loved his relationship with God. And God said, he's mine. Job is mine. You can't have him, Satan, no matter what you do. Job is mine. He's with me. Look what he says about him. He says, not only is he my servant, Job, but look what he says. Please listen. There is none like him on the earth. So Job wasn't just like everybody else. Blameless and upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. Now sometimes when people come to Job and they study Job and they teach Job, they want to say Job had some issues. Well, the people who say that are arguing with God. What did God say? He's upright. He's blameless. He fears God and he shuns evil. There's nobody like him on earth. He's my guy. So keep that in mind as we go forward in Job. Job wasn't wrong. In fact, we get to the end of Job, you know what God's going to say? Job's right, and all you fellas need to hope he prays for you. So, God, in the beginning and at the end, declares, Job's right. He's right about me. He's right to think that I love him, and I care about him, and I'm for him, even if bad things are happening to him. I'm still here, Job. I'm still with you, Job. I still am working in your life, Job. And Job knew it. My servant. Have you considered? He's asking Satan. Okay, you took your best shot at Job and he whooped you. But Satan's not going to accept defeat. Satan's not just going to say, you're right, I'll stop. That's not what he does. So we look. What's Satan's response? 
He says, God in fact says, and still he holds fast to his integrity. You're going to hear that word uh, over and over and over again in the book of Job. He holds fast to his integrity. His integrity is his faith. His belief that God is for him, not against him. No matter what Satan did, he held fast to his integrity. God still loves me, even if all this stuff happened. He holds fast to his integrity. I'm still, I still believe. No matter what. So God says to Satan, Hey man, it didn't shake Job. I mean, he's sad. He mourns. He weeps. But he still trusts me. He still knows I love him. He still believes. Didn't work, Satan. Didn't work. What did it do? I I want us to kind of grab this, this concept because we struggle with this a lot. The Bible says God tempts no man. And then, then the Bible teaches that God doesn't tempt. But the Bible talks all the time about God testing a man. And the funny thing is, when we get down into the, to the Greek, we're talking about almost the exact same word. The Bible says Satan tempts. So what's meant by that? What's the difference? Well, here's the difference. God tests a man like people test a plane. A test pilot doesn't take a plane out to make it crash. What's he take a plane out to do? To prove it. To say to everybody watching, look what this plane can do. To prove. That's what God does. He proves us. Satan takes that exact same opportunity in which God is proving us. And he tries to use it to destroy us. God uses it to prove. Satan uses it to destroy. What Satan wants you to do? Deny God. Get mad at God. Hate God. Does that make your life better? So... All that stuff I went through when I was 13, when I was 17, my dad was a pastor. He left us, ran off with another woman, Um, ultimately he married her, got a new family. And I remember, I was mad at God. God brought something in my life to prove me. Satan used that opportunity to tempt me. And I got angry at God. I was mad at God from 17 to 30. 13 years. My life get better or worse. Yeah. A lot of you guys know the story of those 13 years. Sideways, upside down, crazy, destroying people's lives. Oh man, I left a wake behind me, a huge mess. Because Satan destroys. 
God gives life. The beautiful thing about God's testing, He's always waiting for you to make that turn to say, See? I'm right here. You did it. Trust me. I didn't move. I didn't quit. I didn't leave. I didn't give up on you. I'm right here. I love you, Jackie, no matter what. That's what God says to me. So when we look at it, we see the test that God allows, the opportunity that Satan takes to tempt and destroy. And we can recognize who's working in our life depending on, on our response. When my response was hatred to God for the circumstances that I found in, I was believing the lie of Satan. I was believing his persistence. Because he'd keep whispering in my ear, you know, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let this happen. Anybody ever heard that? If God really cared about you, if he really was good, he wouldn't let this happen. Satan's persistent. He won't stop. And he's progressive. He gets better at what he's doing. Most of us, we read the story of Genesis chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis uh, 3, when we have the fall of man. And we think that just one day Eve's walking through the garden and bloop, there's a serpent and he starts and she falls. I don't believe that. When I read that, Eve's not tripping about talking to a serpent. She's not like, hmm, this is kind of odd. I don't think that's the first time she talked to him. I don't think he was pointing up into a tree. I think he was holding it in his hand. Hey, check this out. And I think a lot of times when Eve was walking by, Satan was waiting. Just, just, just being persistent, just floating it out. I can't prove it. But I think he's floating it out there. Until that day. That day, his persistence paid off. And it was progressive. A little more, a little more, a little more. Another little twist, another little tweak. Don't you see that in your life? When Satan dangles the fruit before you, is it just a, it starts as a little thing, gets a little bigger, gets a little uglier, gets a little deeper? Okay, well, maybe you don't buy that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but you know the story. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness, right? The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. How much of the 40 days and 40 nights do we know about? Everything we read about in Matthew chapter 4 could happen in one day, couldn't it? But the Bible says he was tempted how long? 40 days and 40 nights. God reveals to us the persistence of Satan and the progressiveness. Let's just think about the three we know about. I would say... There were more temptations than those three. 
But I think these three kind of culminate or show us the progressiveness of Satan's uh, attack. Okay? What did it start with? Turn the stones to bread. Right? Oh, it's, a, it's kind of a little thing. What was next? Worship me. What was next? Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. You get what I'm saying? All the things that Satan was doing was progressive. It was, it was, he didn't stay in one place. He's constantly getting deeper, turning the screws, trying to get into you a, a little more, to get his hooks into you to get you to fall. So the first thing we got to know about spiritual attack and the spiritual attack that's coming against Job is Satan is persistent and progressive. He didn't quit in chapter one. There's a whole lot more chapters we got coming. If he quit in chapter one, Job would be the shortest book in the Bible. But it's not. He's persistent. He's progressive. We see it in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is relentless. But let's look. Chapter 2, we're reading. He's talking about Job. In verse 4, Satan says to the Lord, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. A man will sell his soul if you hurt him. Skin for skin. That's, you hear the relentlessness of Satan? Yeah, I ain't done with this yet. I'm going to turn the screws. I'm going to get a little more persistent. I'm going to get a little more progressive. I I took all his stuff. Now I'm going to attack him personally. His progressiveness, his persistence, his relentlessness... Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Who is Satan attacking? God. Job doesn't really love you. Your grace doesn't work. Your love doesn't work. God says, there's nobody like Job. Is that what God says about you? Is that what God says about me? God says there's nobody like him. So the Lord said to Satan. Don't forget verse 6. Because verse 6 brings us. We got the relentlessness of, of Satan. His persistence and progressiveness. But you can't ever forget what we discussed in the last chapter. Who is in control? God. Satan couldn't touch him, could he? And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. But spare his life. So could Satan have killed him? No matter what he did, he couldn't kill him. Because God God said this far, no further. This far, no further. What does the Bible tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13? It says, No temptation or time of testing has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Which means we all go through it. But with it, God gives us what? A way of escape. A mountain pass. With it, God says, this far, no further. So that you might be able to bear it. Because God's purpose, remember we talked about it in the beginning, God's purpose is to destroy us. God's purpose is to make us. What is He doing in us? 
Don't be conformed into the image of this world, but be transformed. So what's God doing in our lives? He's transforming us into whose image? That's right. That's what, that's what God's doing. He's transforming us. He's making us. He's preparing us. His goal is to show, to prove to you and I, we can do it. Think about, did Abraham know he could kill his son? Did Abraham know he loved God more than he loved his son? Not until Genesis 22. When God said that crazy thing to Abraham, go take the son, your only begotten son, whom you love. Do you know that's the first mention of love in the Bible? That's a father's love for his son. Take the son whom you love to a mountain I will show you and you give him to me. Offer him. God didn't do that to kill Isaac. God did it to show Abraham you love me more. Isn't that a cool thing to know? It wasn't a torture of Abraham. It was a showing of Abraham the depth of his faith. And to give Abraham the opportunity to, on a, on a global forum, because millions of people have read Genesis 22, it's God's opportunity to take Abraham and put him out there on the stage and say, that's what I'm going to do one day. I'm going to give my son. And I won't stop. I'm going to give him for you. That's pretty awesome. God proves us. He's in control. Not to destroy, but to prove. So in verse 6, he says, do what you're going to do, right? Do what you're going to do to him. Do what, 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 what is in your heart. I still think, you know, when I look at it, that this is about God's character, God's grace, God's glory. Satan's saying, your grace doesn't work. And Job is saying, God's grace works. Satan was saying, Job won't love you if you don't just do good in his life. And Job is saying, I'll love God no matter what. That's why Job's God's champion. That's why he's the one God chose. That's why Job's one of my heroes. Because God singled him out among everybody who was alive at that time and said, there's no one like him. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. We see here that the battle exists under God's control. Sometimes people have a hard time with that. Psalm 119, you know it's the, it's the long one. It talks about 
God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 75. This is what God says. I know, O Lord, your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I know you're right. And in faithfulness, because you love me, because you're working in my life, you have afflicted me. You have allowed this in my life. The psalmist is declaring God's goodness in the midst of affliction. God's goodness in the midst of suffering. That this is a battle that is going on, but it exists under God's control, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God doesn't allow what's beyond our ability to, to overcome with Him. Please remember that. It's not above our ability. A lot of times people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Um, I kind of shiver when that happens. So God frequently will give you more than you can handle. What He doesn't give you is more than you can handle with Him, in Him. He always gives us that hold point that we can hang on to. Isaiah 45, verse 7. It says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. God's not afraid to take responsibility. Nothing happens that doesn't pass through the hands of a God that was willing to die for you. Nothing. Now my favorite one's Isaiah 55. So let's look there together. In Isaiah 55, you've, you've heard a lot of the parts of Isaiah 55 before. But to me it really shows the concept. That the battle exists under God's control. That it's God who is opening and allowing the things that enter into our lives to enter into our lives. But it also shows us uh, God's purpose in it all. In Isaiah 55, the Lord declares, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he asks a question. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Sure mercies of David. So God's always calling, always reaching out. And his question to us is, how come we spend so much looking for things that won't satisfy when our satisfaction, satiation is found in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus? God satisfies. Job understood that. He goes on and says, Indeed, 
I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Why? Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, that's the Messiah, for He has glorified you. So seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. So first God's saying, come to me, I'll satisfy you. Secondly, he's saying, look, if you're, if you're wicked, if you're out there doing the things you ought not to do, forsake those things and come to me. Come and live. Have life. And then he says the phrase you're familiar with. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways. So, the Lord says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying, I'm doing things you can't comprehend. Did Job have any idea what was going on? Job has no concept of what's happening. Job has no concept of, of the events that are going on, the things that are happening. Job only knows things have gotten crazy. But the Lord says, there are events that are happening around us we don't see. Spiritual attack. Every battle that we face, that we think is against flesh and blood, the Bible says it's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. There is other things happening besides that annoying person in your life or that neighbor who's such a pain or, you know, there's always, there's always something else. And so that's what the Lord's saying. And so he's saying, I'm working in that. I'm moving in that. Remember, we just did the book of Esther. No mention of the name of God, but do we see God's fingerprints in the whole book? God in his providence working. Did Esther see it? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I can see it. That's why it's here in the Bible. So I can see the providence of God moving and working and doing the things. That's why God's thoughts are higher. That's why God's ways are different. He says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return, they water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Well, that's another familiar verse, right? All part of God's providence, God's desire to see us accomplish more than we think we can do. More than we think we can have. God is for us. And the battle belongs to the Lord. Well, we go back to Job. In Job chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. Painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
And he took for himself a potsherd from which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Sound miserable? When we see the third part of spiritual battle. The third part. One, Satan is persistent and progressive. The battle exists, but God's in control. The second part. And the third part, Satan uses humans. I say spend less time worrying about the demon and more time realizing that Satan can get more done with one person. Who's the next person that spoke into Job's life in the midst of his spiritual battle? His wife. His wife. Look what it says. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? What's she mean by you hold fast to your integrity? You still think God loves you? You still think God's for you? You made God mad. Curse God and die. Give up. Quit. Stop. Satan's going to use the human agency. Think about the attacks that came against him in chapter 1 and 2. You got armies, nature, family, health, friends, and a wife. Those are the things Satan is going to use to try to get Job to believe God's not for him. To get Job to believe God doesn't love him. To get Job to believe that he has alienated God and so it's over for him. And his wife is looking at all the circumstances and she does what we do. Man, you lost all your money, all your gold, all your silver, all your, your, your critters, <laughs> all your livestock, all your stuff, all your kids. Now you've got disease, you've got sores all over your body, you're miserable, I can't even recognize who you are. Job's wife says, God hates you. Why do you still hold that God loves you? If God loves you, He wouldn't let this happen. And all the while, Job held to his integrity. God loves me. I love that. we got to recognize that Satan's going to use it. You ever had somebody come and whisper in your ear the thing you didn't need to hear? You ever had somebody come to you in your middle of despair and you're kind of down and you're having a rough time and somebody come and put that extra straw on the camel's back? I don't want to be that person. So I try to be careful not to sound like Job's wife and Job's friends. I try to to realize that Job's friends did the best thing they could have done in the next three verses. 11, 12, and 13 anyway. And that's, that's kind of where we probably ought to focus. Well, let's see. She says, curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God 
And shall we not accept adversity? Shall we accept good from God only? Should we only love God when life is good? Should we only love God when all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed? Or should we love God unconditionally? How's God love us? Does He love you only when you're good? Does He only love you when you're not sinning? The Bible says, In this, the love of God is evident. That while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for the ungodly. So when does God love us? So when God says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's He looking for? Yeah, no matter what. No matter He heals or He don't. No matter He gives you all the gold you can carry or just splinters. No matter what. Unconditionally. Job says, man, I'm going to accept from the hand of God everything. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. He did not blame God. He did not hate God. He still trusted Him. Everything's gone. He's in a pile of ashes. He's got sores all over his body. He's scraping the pus out with a piece of pottery. That's kind of gross. (laughs) You needed that description, huh? But, in all that, he didn't sin. God uses people. But when God uses people, please realize it's not always bad people God uses. It's not always bad people that Satan uses to disrupt what, what God's trying to do. We talked about Eve earlier, you know, the persistence of Satan. I think the persistence of Satan with Eve. Who brought the fruit to Adam? Eve. Was it evil in her heart? I don't think so. She was deceived, the Bible says. Eve was deceived. The problem with Adam is he wasn't, right? That's why God said men should get off their duff and be who they're supposed to be. Because Adam knew. Eve didn't. But it was Eve. What about Jesus? Satan uses human agency. God gives us strength. Job didn't curse God. The devil used Job's wife. Not because she's evil. Because she was in a good spot. What's another example of, of, of the devil using somebody like that? Jesus uh, uh, telling the, 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 his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they had various answers. And, and, and then Jesus said, Well, who do you say? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So, the Father in heaven is talking to Peter. And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And I'm going to be in the ground three days and then I'm going to arise. 
Peter said. Not so, Lord. And Jesus addressed who was behind Peter's statement, didn't he? Get thee behind me, Satan. The devil uses people. Sometimes good, what we would consider godly people. I have quotations because nobody's good, right? But you guys get what I mean? He uses people. So, Job doesn't sin. Job holds on to his faith, his integrity. What happens in verse 11? Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. So the second part of chapter 2, we see spiritual warfare, okay? So spiritual warfare, the persistence of Satan, that the battle rages, but God is in control, and that Satan uses humans in, in the battle. But when Jesus looked at that, he saw behind Peter, right? And he saw that this is spiritual, right? Get behind me, Satan. He said it to Peter, but, but he knew what was going on. Well, then we come to this, uh, Job's in the ash pit, he's scraping himself, he's, he's in the pit, and we come to the section, I think the best section in Job, on comfort. I won't be able to say that in another chapter. Best section on comfort. Did his three friends care about him? When I look at this, there, there, there are, there are a couple things that I see here that should help us have a concept for how to comfort someone who's suffering, who's going through hardship. First thing was right there. They came physically. They came from a long ways. I'm not, Job's friends cared about Job. Remember, they they didn't just go, you know, I'm going to take the bus. Go see Job today. There wasn't a bus, was there? And maybe. Maybe they walked. Maybe it was a hassle and they had to put a big caravan together because we don't know where they came from. Right? We, we know, I mean, the Bible tells us where they came from, but we don't know where that is. We don't know anything else about his friends except that they came to Job. So if you're going to comfort someone, you don't do it on Facebook. And you don't do it in a text. You do it with your physical presence. It came. Did it cost them something? Yeah. It's going to cost you something. To comfort. It's going to cost you time. It might cost you travel and expenses. It's going to cost. But that, but they, but they did it. They did it. They were willing to do it. They made an appointment to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. And they lifted their voices and wept. I like that too. The Bible tells in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort others who are in any affliction. With the comfort that we ourselves received from Him. Physical presence. And then we take appropriate action. Now, you ever been in a situation where you don't know what to say? Yeah. That's the Holy Spirit politely telling you not to say anything. Do you see Job's friends say anything? Nope. What'd they do? They wept. Appropriate actions. Sometimes we feel like we have to have an answer for why this is happening to somebody. I'm just here to tell you sometimes you don't have no answers. I shared with you before, sitting at a board meeting, we're going over, I don't even remember what we're talking about. Somebody comes in and drops a note over my shoulder, which I was, was kind of different. And the note said, Billy just ran over his baby. And they're at the emergency room. So my board meeting was over. <laughs> so I got up and went to the emergency room. Go ahead. Tell me. What do you say? What's going to comfort a father who just ran over his one-year-old? You ain't got no words. Ain't no magic. So, I see him down the hallway. He sees me. He starts running at me. And he throws his arms around me and he starts weeping. And then he asked me questions that I answered. Tell me this is part of God's plan. And I didn't just kill my baby. So I answered him. This is part of God's plan. And I cried with him. But I did not try to answer nothing else. Because I don't got one. I just know that when I'm comforting somebody, I take the appropriate actions. And that's what they did. They were appropriate. The Bible tells us some other things that they did. Let's take a look. Not only did they lift up their voices and weep, each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. This is kind of important when we're comforting somebody. They put themselves in the same place Job was. Job had ashes on his head. They put ashes on their head. Job's clothes were torn. They tore their clothes. That was very appropriate actions in, in, in Middle Eastern culture. It's a little weird today, right? If I went in to talk to somebody who's who's needing comfort and when I see him I tear my clothes and 
pour a bull ass on my head, they're probably going to ask me to leave. But it was appropriate. And what it symbolized was they put themselves, his friends put themselves where Job was. They didn't say nothing. The Bible says it like this. Mourn with he who mourns. Rejoice with he who rejoices. So where they're at, I'm going to meet them right there. I don't offer some flippant Romans 8.28 quote. Because unless God makes me, I, have, I don't have an answer, so I'm just going to be with them. Physical presence. Arm around the shoulder, weeping together. How's that comforting? Don't you realize when you mourn with somebody, you shoulder some of the burden? When you mourn with somebody, you're taking some of the weight of the mourning on yourself. Sharing in the mourning lessens the burden of mourning. That's how we comfort. Job's friends care about him. They love him. They show up physically. They're there. They weep and they they have appropriate action, right? They're not offering any kind of crazy answers. In John chapter 11, we see Mary and Martha mourning over the loss of their brother, Lazarus, right? And, and, and Mary and Martha come up to Jesus and they're kind of irritated. That's how I see it in the scripture. Hey, they come up to him and they say, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. That's when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, and though he die, yet shall he live. He says, do you believe this? You remember what they said? I believe, Lord. So Jesus answered their questions. Tried to give them, you know, a little hint of hope, what he's about to do. What do he do next? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He knows He's going to raise him. He knows He's going to make all their dreams come true. Jesus wept. Because that's what we do to comfort. Does that not kind of tweak with your mind? The God of the universe wept. I don't think those are the first tears he shed. Comfort. Comfort. That's what his friends are doing. The point is to give expressions of love and concern, not expressions of meaning. You guys know what I mean? I don't want to try to explain why this happened. I have no idea. What I want to express is I care about you, I love you, I'm concerned for you. That's what I want to express. 
So whatever is going to express those things, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. But then the scripture goes on to tell us, not only did they do this, they sprinkled dust on their head toward heaven, and they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. They weren't in a hurry. I got a call one night, two in the morning. Nobody I know. Nobody who comes to church. Just random guy who knew somebody who had my number. So they called me. Their, his wife's uncle was in intensive care. They were, he was on life support. They were going to unplug him. They didn't want to unplug him until... A pastor could come by and, and pray, and um, so they called me. And it's two in the morning. It's Saturday. Sunday morning's the next day. I'm kind of tired. I'd really rather do something else. Bye, go. Don't know him. Don't know what to say. Don't know how to say it. So we get there, and I, I, I introduce myself, and I, and I, did what what we're talking about. I'm there. I'm I'm comforting, just trying to put myself in in their place and tell them I love them. I can't tell them why anything's happening. I'm just telling them I'm here and I care about you. Somewhere in the back of my head, I'm thinking, i got to get up in a couple of hours. I really ought to be going. But I also have the Spirit saying, it's going to be okay. Just stay. So I stay. I don't know how long I was there, maybe an hour, hour and a half. Eventually, you know, start to reach the point where they're wondering when I'm going to leave instead of who I am. So so I, I kind of went around and shared with them. And as, as I'm leaving, one of the guys comes running over to me and and he he wants to know what's the word say? But none of those guys are believers. Nobody in that family. I don't know why they wanted a preacher. But that one guy, he, he wants to talk about the gospel. So I can kind of walk him through the gospel and, and, and express the word to him. And Anyway, the night eventually ends. I go home. That guy comes and sees me again in the office. And of all the things that happened in that time period... There's only one thing he wanted to tell me about. Thanks for not just rushing in and rushing out. Thanks for taking the time. When we comfort somebody seven days and seven nights, they didn't say a word. They just sat there weeping with Job. Hey, I'm going to hammer on these guys later. Probably a little. But before I do that, I want to say, hey, those are good friends. I don't got a, I, I don't know. I, I got friends. I don't know. I, I haven't been through this. I don't know who would sit with me for seven days and seven nights. 
not say a word. Not eat. They're outside in a pit of ash. (laughs) Those are people who cared. But as we work our way through Job, we're coming into a section where their arguments are going to start and and we're going to see Job continuing to defend his integrity that God is for me and that God loves me and that these things are good and and, and God still cares and I still love Him and we still have a relationship. I hope we remember the battles we face aren't against flesh and blood. The spiritual battles. And God's in control. And sometimes the devil's going to use people, bad people or good people, to speak into our life. But we need to remember the battle's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. That's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter didn't go move behind him. But Satan did. And when something happens, and we need the comfort, that we comfort physically. And that we comfort not trying to give answers, but just express our love and concern. And we're not in a hurry. It's over when it's over. We do what we do. Then, maybe, God will look down from heaven on you and me. And He'll say, have you considered my servant? There's nobody like him. He's just that committed to me. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the time we can spend in your word and for this study, God, of your champion, Job, who who championed the cause of your grace and your love and your mercy, who knew no matter what happened to him, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Who understood that just because bad things happen doesn't mean I'm in sin. Sometimes bad things just happen. But when the battles happen, there's always a spiritual reality somewhere in the background. God, I pray that we would learn to be comforters like Job's friends initially. That we recognize their care and concern and their desire and love for their friend and that we learn later on not to make the mistakes they made to try to have answers for questions we don't have answers to. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to Job and the things that you have for us here. That we would learn, that we would grow, and that we one day may be considered one of God's champions. Someone who loves you no matter what. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to your truth and your reality. And that we would give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.